Hey, yo, and here we go. Another episode of We Talk Music is on the air and in your ear. Once again, I am Morten, and I have with me the king of the casters. He is Mr. Brett Podcast. And Brett, uh, we also have a guest today. That's right. I, it's amazing that we have a guest because it's it's like we almost never have guests on the show that we've always had guests on. But uh, but it's it's fantastic. It has been almost a year to the day that we last spoke to this gentleman. So it is high time to catch up with the lead singer of the High Plains Drifters, Larry Stadnicki. Larry, happy to have you back. How are you? I, I'm great. And I thank you guys for having me and shining a little light on the High Plains Drifters. We're very grateful. Well, you know, it's uh, the thing is, is that I'm always reminded every time that I go back and especially listen to listen to some of the other music. But uh, and since you've been gone and stuff like that, which is what we were talking about last time. But I'm always reminded of how happy the music makes me and how much I enjoy it. So thank you. Well, I, I thank you for the kind comments. I'm glad we have that impact. And so now, of course, you're you're here to talk about the one that got away as well as many other things. But uh the one that got away and the video i mean 1.5 million views on on that video that's amazing it, it it's especially amazing for an unsigned indie band of older guys who give us some credit we had the good sense not to put ourselves in the video <laughs> but but the the i mean fate just smiled on us with this video uh julie bielke the star was perfectly cast she's She's adorable. She's like the, the cutest girl next door you could ever imagine, you know? Uh, and I think almost anybody of any age, male, female, in between all the undecideds, you know, anybody can, can see her in this video and, and get into it. And I, I think, I think it's the magic of the video more than the magic of the song. I don't, I don't want to downplay my song. I think it's a super catchy tune. The band killed it. Uh, but the, the video is, it, there's just something really special about it. Well, and it's really nicely done. And I think that's the, that's the thing. Like the, it's, it's well-designed, it's well-executed. And I think we've seen so many videos, especially nowadays with the music industry, the way it is, where you can, everybody can shoot their own music videos. So, I mean, it doesn't mean that you're going to get a well-designed and thoughtful music video, but I think that that's something that, that you've got here is a well-designed, well-executed, thoughtful video. Well, I, I, I give credit to our, our marketing guru, Jonathan Chang, who worked with uh, Lars Scaland, the producer director on this. And all I, all I had to do was green light a treatment that to me sounded perfect for the song. I could not have foreseen just how great the video would, would turn out. I think we really had paid her. Where was this? Uh, where was the video filmed? Video was shot in Trondheim, Norway, which is about as far north as one can go in Norway and still find civilization. <laughs> <laughs> and it looks beautiful. I mean, there's no question. By the time you get to the end of the video, like at the beginning, you're kind of like, hmm, where is that? And then by the end, you're like, well, that definitely ain't Kansas. No, definitely ain't Kansas, but it, it, it's absolutely someplace that's now on my short list, uh, you know, my bucket list of places that I should visit, visit if only to thank Lars for what he's done for us. He's been doing videos now with us for a year. We have a couple more in the works with him. We're sticking with him for the time being. And, and the High Plains Drifters owe him and his team a, a big debt of gratitude for making us look like maybe we have all the major labels behind us instead of none. <laughs> is he is he a full-time video director? Is that his that's what I, I believe I, th that's how he makes his living as far as I know. I, I, I think he does a fair amount of uh, major label work as well, which I hope uh, fattens his wallet enough so that he's able to work with us struggling indie bands on a on a very cost effective basis. He's been really good to us. Yeah, and and I guess it's really important to find somebody and kind of almost get in on the ground floor in that case and wind up, you know, developing a relationship so that you can. Yeah, because I mean, I remember the '80s when you had all these like big name directors, like I mean, the Russell Mulcahy from the Duran Duran. You got Michael Bay, of course, who directed all those music videos. I mean, all these people directed music videos, and I think uh, sure the cost was astronomical for a music video, but I bet you like they probably gave more of a deal to people that they were working with in the early days than they would the latter days. Yeah, I mean, you hope you build some goodwill with with people as they're as they're coming up in the world. So, you know, I, I hope we'll get to keep, I hope that uh, what he's done for us doesn't 
make him so famous that we're priced out of it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. And, and you hope that, that at least if, if he's going to go, then you guys get along there too. Yeah. Maybe we get along or maybe, maybe we can at least uh, drag Julie into another video someday. So <laughs> that would be a smart move. That would get me to watch. Well, we're, we're that I can't say it's going to happen, but I've made the request to have her featured in a, in a video uh, where we we've, We've done the treatment. There'll be a few girl, few gals in it, and I really want Julie to be one. I don't know if she'll be available or, or if she'll even want to do another High Plane Strifters video. We'll see. We'll see. Is, uh, how do you, do you feel any extra pressure for your follow-up to this, considering the success you've had? Uh, well, our success is still rather muted. I mean, we're getting great press. You know, you, I keep, when I, when I, there are a lot of people who don't even know that I have a career in music. And so when I disclose it, I say, well, you know, they go, what do you do for fun? I go, well, I, I don't play golf. I don't play tennis. Well, what do you do? And I go, well, I'm the lead singer songwriter of an obscure, but critically acclaimed indie rock band. And, and usually they <laughs> drop whatever they're holding or, you know, um, and then I just send them a bunch of links and, and you know, the, the doubts kind of go away. Um, I, I didn't, what, what we felt pressured if we felt any pressure, it was self-imposed and it was really to try and be a little more disciplined in our approach to the second album and not go quite as far afield in exploring all the genres of music that we love. Uh, the, the, the debut album was a difficult uh, task from a marketing point of view because it was so diverse in terms of genres. And on this one, we're, we tried to focus on the songs that lend themselves to it. We made a conscious decision to, to like pick, like probably for most of the guys in the band, our, our favorite decade of popular music would be the eighties. And, and we thought we could do something kind of reimagining some of the new wave sounds. So, and that's what you've heard on these first two singles uh, since you've been gone and the one that got away. It's interesting. Cause I don't think most of the audience knows what your daytime profession is. So why don't you explain a little bit? I try not to speak about it. Uh, I was I, I, I've been a corporate lawyer uh, for my entire professional career with a, an occasional sideline. You know, occasionally, I've dipped my toes into various uh, aspects of uh, entertainment law. Um, when I when I want to, like, knock a kid over, uh, I'll say to him, well, you know, back when you were in diapers in the 90s, I was part of the legal team that was representing Suge Knight and Death Row Records and LL Cool J and Mary J. Blige. And, and that's all true. Uh, and that's about the only thing that gets their attention because you say I'm a corporate, you say I'm a corporate lawyer and, you know, like their eyes glaze over. I think there's a uh, misconception, I guess it is, that uh, that's a, a stuffy industry and somebody in that industry wouldn't have an artistic side. And you're yeah. obviously proof of otherwise. Well, it's funny because, uh, I remember asking one of my best friends in law school, uh, I was like, Mike, how'd you end up here? It's like, you know, a lot of us ended up in law. I, I chose law school because I thought I wanted to be a trial lawyer. And then after a year of big city, big firm litigation work, I ran screaming from it uh, to, to get onto the deal side, trying to help people build things rather than rip at someone's jugular. So I, I was talking to my buddy, Mike, and I was like, what are you doing here, man? He goes, well, he goes, I didn't want to work right after college. And, uh, you know, uh, Mick, Mick Jagger already took the job as the lead singer of the Rolling Stones. So, so I, I figured if I could get into a decent law school, I'll <laughs> hang out here for a few years and figure it out. A lot of lawyers are, are wannabe or frustrated or even successful writers. You have to love the written word to, to, to play in the law. So you find a lot of lawyers with real passions in various fields of the arts. Uh, I mean, I, I wanted to be a songwriter before I ever thought about being a lawyer. I started writing songs at 16. Um, the, the law was just kind of a way to, uh, you know, pay the bills, get through life, you know, take care of my family. Without much math. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no kidding. No kidding. I, it's like, <laughs> I, I still, I tell my poor daughter, she's 15. And I, and I go, I go, I know it makes no sense to you, you're going to be tortured with math for the next several years of high school. And, you know, when you get out, 
there are going to be people in whatever company you're in who know how to do math. <laughs> and you, won't know, you won't have to know how to do it. But for now, you got to bite the bullet, pretend, you, you know, just fight your way through it, do the best you can. But I'll never get upset with you with a shitty grade in math because because it's hard. If you're not, <laughs> it's hard. Uh, back to the music, back to the music. How many uh, tracks are on the uh, follow-up album and how many are, I, uh, I think have we'll, you crafted? I think we'll settle on 12. We're, we're done. Um, I think it's 12. I'd have to go back and, and count again. Uh, everything's in the can. Everything's mixed. But for the last two tracks, I think they're mixed. We're listening to them now. We've got another, uh, another couple of songs that re-explore the 80s new wave sounds. One is called um, Until We Dance. And the other one is called Funny About Love. And that song, Funny About Love, finally, I think, got me over uh, a, a months-long period of being stumped on what to name this second album. I, I, think, I think we'll call it, you know, Feeling Funny About Love. Most of the songs are about busted or failed relationships. A couple of them are a little more optimistic, but on the whole, it's a, you know, it's, it's a song full of albums about uh, love and loss. Well, and you had sent us that one song after the last time we chatted for a little bit, uh, which was so good, the Ruby song. And so I love, I love, I love Ruby Runaway with me. Yeah. We, we haven't pushed it as a single, but I just love the way the band worked out the parts on that. And especially when the, when the Rickenbackers kick in, I mean, it's like, I, I just dig it. It's a great, great, great song for driving around in your car. Well, and that's, you know, driving around in your car. I mean, that's a whole separate kind of music, right? I mean, just, just having those kind of songs that you can put on a, you know, mixtape or whatever <laughs> there. I'll date myself in mixtape. <laughs> no, I know you, you, you and me both. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, kids now and, and even adults now, you know, they don't know what the mixtape is, but it, it lives in, in the playlists that they construct. Uh, my daughter's a year away from getting her license, um, and she usually controls the stereo when we're, when we're in the car, and she's usually <laughs> playing off a, off a playlist that she's constructed. So, yeah, she's, she's following. They're all following in our generation's footsteps. They just don't know what a mixtape is. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just no work now, you know, like that's the funny thing, right? Like as back in our days, I mean, a mixtape was just like, you played that you would take the song off of, off of another cassette or the radio and you would just kind of jam yeah. it down. I, on I, I, re, I, 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 I remember that painful process because I, I, I was uh, in a, in a social club in law school and we used to throw the occasional parties and someone had to provide the music and we didn't have the money to hire DJs. So you know, you'd sit down. I think back then it was still, you know, from the cassette you bought in the store, isolating that one single, duping it onto a cassette, and then moving on to the next one and doing that. It took a took a long time. Bad use of my time. I could have gotten better grades in law school if I spent less time on mixtapes. But you know, I ahead, we bro. all realize it with music, though. In general, like I've I've been watching uh, music video shows from back in the day, and and like, and I can regale my girlfriend with stories of like all the stories that I know of the band. It's like, oh, this person was in this band, and now it's, they're in this band, and it's just like, and then at the end, I think, oh, did I waste my life? I, no, you didn't, man. Because <laughs> you know what? What are the things that make you? like feel connected to the cosmos in a way, you know, I'm not trying to make it sound too grandiose, but it's like the fact that I might be sitting around, you know, some random afternoon and a song just pops into my head or the beginnings of a song, lyrics and melody, just out of nowhere. It's, it's a magical mystical thing. And, and, and it, I, it's, it makes you think that like, you know, there are all these possibilities in life that, that are cool and good. And, you know, yeah, we, I mean, we all have, I mean, you guys are lucky. You make, you make your livings doing music. You know, for me, it's, for me, it's a sideline. If I can make a living out of it, I would. And, you know, maybe down the road, who knows? But uh, I think, I think music is one of the, one of the things that makes me sometimes sit back and go, there must be a God because where the hell else does all this shit come from? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I know the feeling it's, it's, We've talked about this about uh, with many many different musicians, and they talk about, you know, the, how the ideas is it's like they already exist, and they just it, have an antenna that lets exactly. them pull it exactly. In. I, I remember watching an interview on one of the late night 
TV shows years ago. And I think the clip's probably on YouTube. I just wouldn't know what search to run for it. But it was the Bee Gees, all three of the Gibb brothers when they were all still alive, being interviewed like in the 90s or something. And inevitably, the interviewer brings it around to the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. And he says to them, how long did it take you to write, you know, whatever, staying alive? And two of the three brothers just blurted out simultaneously, three minutes and 32 seconds. <laughs> and I just, I, just started, I just started laughing because, and Barry Gibb then just said, he said, it just came out finished. And I just started laughing because sometimes that's exactly what happens. Sometimes the, uh, our song on the first album, and there's a remix of it on, on the current album, uh, Jennifer Aniston, I, it, the entire song poured into my head as I was walking into Herald Square by Macy's in New York City. The entire song just poured into my head like in an instant. I stopped in my tracks, pulled out my iPhone and sang it into my iPhone. I mean, it wasn't done, but I had the song. It just came from nowhere. Yeah, it's it's amazing when you think about about being able to do that. And then and then it's just a matter of, you know, putting the music to it, I guess. Yeah, and, and and on that, I'm I'm blessed to have a phenomenal producer and an amazingly talented band because um, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, and I don't, I'm not shy about it. I don't play an instrument. Uh, I was I didn't have music lessons as a kid. It wasn't part of the way my the kids in my family grew up. My parents didn't push us to do it. I had no inkling that music would start writing itself in my head at around age 16. So I, I never sought out the lessons, but. Um, I, I need really talented guys around me to to realize the full potential of the lyrics and melody that I hear. I mean, I hear instruments on some songs, and I do my best to convey those to the band. And they always know, they always figure out what it is I'm hearing. Um, but a lot of the music is theirs, and they're they're great at it. You mentioned the band several times now. Tell us who the individuals in the band are. Okay, it started with myself. John Makem, who's a guitarist, and Charles Zarnecki, who's a uh, uh, classical pianist by training, uh, conducted the New York Pops. Uh, uh, at, at the time I met him, he was assistant musical director for Jersey Boys on Broadway, just an unbelievable musician. And the three of us got together. I knew them both. And I just wanted to get one song recorded and out. It was a Christmas song. It's on our first record. It's called Get Me Home by Christmas Eve. I, I had no intention of forming a band or, or continuing with the project, but the song came out well, thanks to John and Charles and, and the other guys that came along. It got on the radio. And so I like said, maybe we should keep going. And they were like, why not? Uh, so started with the, the three of us. I knew Mike DeCampo, who's another one of our guitarists from a recording project that I was briefly involved in back in the 90s. I asked Mike to come on board. Um, Greg Cohen is a longtime friend of mine from the city. Uh, you know, I, I, I knew him as a record producer, uh, got him involved about halfway through album one uh, as our producer. Charles Zarnecki had produced up to that point, but was getting married and moved to Germany. So Greg's been in the, in the producer's chair since like roughly the second half of the first album, everything on this album. Um, we had a session. We had a session drummer and a session bass player originally. I, you know, they were just guys we paid. They, they got us through about the first half of album one. And then uh, uh, our recording engineer is a drummer by training. And I asked him if he'd play drums on one of our tracks. And he did. And he's been drumming for us ever since. And then he pulled in uh, Dave Richards, who's been our bass guitarist since uh, that second half of album one. And then... Two, two gals that I know who show up when we need backup singers, Christina Benedetto and Sabrina Ann Curry. That, that's everybody. That's everybody. That's, you know, it sounds great. Well, I, may not have, I may not have mentioned our drummer, Kyle, Kyle Castle. I'm not sure I said his name. Uh, no, I don't believe you did, but you did now. That's yeah. fine. Uh, since you don't play an instrument, do you sometimes find it difficult to convey to the band what it is you're looking for? Not as much as you might think. Uh, it, it's a very weird process, but I've read enough stories online about other guys like me. And I don't, I'm not saying I'm like this guy because he was one of the greatest ever, but Michael Jackson didn't play an instrument, but he was able to I was thinking that <clears throat> he was able, he was able to sit with a Quincy Jones or whoever was producing him 
and say, I hear guitars that go like this. And then you, I mean, it's goofy, but you can, you know, we, we can all like mimic guitar chords and you can certainly convey the notes that you hear to people. Right. So like, you know, sometimes I hear notes, sometimes I hear chords and the band gets it pretty quickly. Like they might hit a few chords and I go, nope, nope, nope. And then I'll hear it and I'll go, that's it. That's the chord. Um, so it, it, it's not as hard as you might think. And, yeah, and sometimes, again, when I'm lucky and I hear a lot of instruments, uh, like there's a, there's a ballad that's on this second album called Michelle. And I heard very specific uh, instrumentation on there, uh, including some of the piano parts that you'll hear. And I just sat with Greg Cohen and said, here's how the notes go. And he picked them out on a keyboard. And when they were right, I said, that's it. So then when it comes to the production and like, say the flourishes that, that producers often bring to the music, like, do you, do you just kind of let Greg go? Do you have some of those in your mind as well? You kind of let, you kind of have to put yourself in the hands of the guys that are better at these things than you are. Um, if I were giving any young singer songwriter advice about, you know, what to do, I'd say surround yourself with people that you know are better musicians than you'll ever be, uh, you know, and, and good things will happen, you know, g- give them, give them free reign, see what they come up with. And you're not going to use everything. You're going to edit things down, but um, Greg, Greg and I will decide on the overall musical direction, like the, the genre, uh, you know, the basic instrumentation, and then we'll let the guys do what they do best. And not all of it survives. That's what you know the mixing and editing process are for. How often do you get a chance to like hang out with everybody? Do you get the band together, the collective? Sorry, subsets of us get together. COVID made it. These last two years were a bitch. COVID made it hard. Uh, but uh, I see Greg more frequently than I see the other guys, um, just because. Uh, yeah, you know, we're, 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 we're working on demos of stuff or whatever, but it, it's always been really easy for Greg and I to get together. Uh, Mike DeCampo's in Staten Island. It's a little more difficult for him sometimes with his day job. Um, but every, you know, when, when we're lucky, we get three or four of the guys to, I try to make a point of getting everybody together or some subset of the band together for dinner, just to shoot the shit every few months, you know? Mm-hmm. How about something like the artwork on the, album cover how involved are you in that is it kind of a similar process where you describe what you want no i again the artwork i leave to the pros uh we have a really talented marketing consultant named jonathan chang he's the guy that hooked us up with lars uh as our video guy in norway jonathan also uh, he's he's like me he has a schizo split background he spent time on wall street and he spent time in the major label world um, so he, he and I kind of walk and talk in these two schizo worlds, but it's easy for us to communicate that way. So Jonathan found a guy named Sean Mosher Smith, and he's been doing our artwork since I guess the cover of the debut album. He's done all the covers for these singles. Jonathan will talk through with me like sort of overarching themes or, or, or ideas that we want to kind of stay consistent with. If you look at our, if you look at like the, first two the first two videos we put out last year the official video and the lyrics video for since you've been gone and look at some of the related uh singles artwork that sean did there's a there's a common theme of space and you know guys being in space and and we did that in part because you know being an astronaut up there is about as disconnected from the world as you can get. And a lot of the songs on this album are about being disconnected from people you used to love. So we thought that fit. What I'm getting from you is so much of the creative process you're telling me is trust, simple trust in other people. It, it is. I mean, you have to, you have to start with more than an average amount of belief in yourself and self-confidence to do this. And, and that was my big, my big failure for the first part of my working life was to not have 
the confidence and the courage to go test my songs out. I just kept writing them and writing them and throwing scraps of lyrics here and there. Um, not, not believing that they were as good as I thought maybe they were. So you have to get over that hump, you know, great artists probably get over it, you know, by the time they're out of high school, I didn't, I was well into my thirties before I was willing to take a stab at it. Um, but then, yeah, you have to, you have to trust other people who have skill sets that you don't, that, that you're taking your baby and putting it in their hands. And at least in, in my case with these guys, inevitably, what comes out of the collaborative process is better than anything I could have ever done myself. And, and that, that's a home run when you have a band like that. Well, and I think, you know, it must be, it must be so gratifying to, to send your baby out there, so to speak, and then, and then to have it come back fully fleshed out in a way that you could not have done yourself. And then to, to see what wound up, you know, being birthed from that. Yeah, I'll give, I'll give you an example. And I, I've talked about this in, in some of the print interviews and maybe, maybe on radio, I don't know. Um, I, I went into Greg in like October a year ago, October 2020, and presented the beginning of a new song to him. All I had and all I had had for quite, quite some number of years was I had a couple of verses and melody. And so I, I just took the first verse, sang it for Greg. I didn't really have any instrumentation. It wasn't a case where I said, oh, and by the way, Greg, I hear a basic drum track that goes like this. And I hear chords that go. I, I had no instrumentation in mind. And Greg he recorded it. He spun around in his chair from his, you know, little producer workstation there. And he said, uh, well, first of all, I love it. And secondly, I know you're going to say I'm insane, but I hear it as a bossa nova song. And I said, that's fucking crazy. I mean, I said that not, <laughs> I, like, like, like in a million years, I would have never heard the song as a bossa nova tune. And, and then I just sat back and I, and I was like, you know, I've, I've been trusting this guy all through this process. If he thinks we should do it as a bossa nova sand, as a bossa nova tomb, let's just see what the band can do. So we, we talked to the guys. It, it turned out I thought we were screwed because it turned out that only Kyle Castle, our drummer, had ever played anything like that kind of music, and he hadn't played it since I think he said he played some Latin jazz in high school in music class. Nobody else had played the stuff, but Greg and first John Makeham got together and worked out some basic chord progressions that they thought would work for bossa nova tune. And then Greg and I had Mike DeCampo come over to Greg's studio. And we, DeCampo, we call him Doc. And so Doc comes in. He came in with just one acoustic guitar. And he says, and it, it, this guy's been a professional guitar instructor for more than 30 years. So he comes in and he goes, I've never played this stuff, but I locked myself in my basement for the last three days. And I listened to nothing but Bossa Nova records. And I think I got it. And what he played there, his very first take, survives to this day on the finished recording it was perfect it i mean it was note for note perfect it didn't have to be edited it was a one take thing it was miraculous to see and greg and i just sat back and went okay we got we got a bossa nova song now let's you know let's let's bring kyle in to finish out the rhythm section and dave richards on the bass and and blah 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 and it, no one's heard it yet it, it's been licensed by a, a uk indie label that that likes our stuff I've come to know the guys there. They have a like a soft jazz compilation they put out every year in the U.S. and the British Commonwealth territories called uh, Goa, G-O-A, Goa Chill Out Zone. So this song, which is called How Did I Write This Song, it will show up later this year, both on our second album and on Goa Chill Out Zone Volume 11. And uh, it, it may never get, you know, radio play here in the States. I have no idea, but it's a really cool bossa nova song. And I love that genre. Well, it's neat. I think that you have that ability to just kind of, you know, say, oh, let's try a bossa nova song. And then, and then everybody has that desire to kind of follow along with that strategy of yeah. like, as opposed to being like, mm, no, we're, we kind of like the eighties pop. So well, no, well, you, you can't, you can't go crazy. I mean, you, you, you don't want to, you, you don't want to, produce something that becomes another marketing headache for, for whoever's assisting you on the back end, you know? Um, but yeah, if you think about, I, I, I think back to like Blondie's album uh, where they threw in uh, the tide is high, right? Like where did that come from? 
you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't new wave. It wasn't pop punk, but, but it was gorgeous. Um, and it's still one of my favorite songs of the eighties. And even, even guys like, you know, the Ramones and green day who on their early records, every song sounded the same, you know, well, as they grew up and got older, the, not so much the Ramones, but certainly Green Day, you know, the songs became a little more adventuresome and, and they explored a few other genres. They, they, they got out of the pop punk lane every now and then and always to good effect. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, and, and I can think of, you know, I mean, there's so many bands that I could think of that have veered out for just a little bit. And it's and it's always and it's and it's a fun sideline, but it's not it doesn't have to define. Them. Right. Exactly. I don't want us to be defined as a bossa nova band, but I'm hoping the song finds a home in Brazil, you know? <laughs> so then have you ever, I mean, you talked earlier about how you don't play an instrument. Have you considered attempting to like learn to play guitar or something just to I, play? I, 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 in, I spent one year in Manhattan in between college and law school, and I briefly took some guitar lessons, but I just wasn't dedicated to it. And then I went off to law school and, and law school tends to eat up a lot of your free time. So, I mean, if I had been smart, I'd have, I'd have headed to Cambridge Commons, found Jonathan Richmond, asked him to teach me to play guitar. Although I'm, I'm not sure he was still in Cambridge at the time. But, um, uh, but uh, I asked Mike DeCampo, how long would it take you to teach me to play guitar? He goes, he goes I could get you good in three years. And, and <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm an old, I, I sat back and I go, man, you know, like, like, yeah, I, I'm an older guy and I, I don't want to spend three years now learning to do that when I have you, you know, I have you, but you know, like, like you can do that. But, but part of me, it, I still have a bucket on my bucket list is to take piano lessons. I really want to do that. And I still work between music and law, I still work a little too hard probably to, to make that a reality, but I'm hoping I'll learn to play the piano over the next five or 10 years. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think, you know, just being able to add, I mean, it's funny seeing sometimes we see a lead singer of a band who you didn't even realize could play guitar. And I don't know that they could play it well, but suddenly they'll just kind of pull out the guitar and start strumming a few chords. And it's just like, Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, like, like, I can't remember the last time I saw Jagger pick up a guitar, but I, I know he plays. I mean, you know, and, and what about, does Bono play? I've never, it's like, I don't even know. Oh boy. Yeah. That's a really good question. I don't you know guys what I've ever seen. Find out and email me because yes. maybe, maybe, maybe Bono is as lazy as I am. He has, two brilliant, <laughs> he has two brilliant guitarists backing him up, as do I, and Bono and I are never going to learn to play guitar. <laughs> well when when next time we get bono on the show you know <laughs> yeah. tell, tell him i said hi <laughs> <laughs> do you have uh any other songs like ruby run away with me that uh, maybe it won't be a single but you're really anxious for people to hear the bossa nova song is one for sure um uh well there's one we haven't recorded um it, it it's it's uh, Ruby run away with me has a, it leans a little Americana. I mean, when I first heard it in my head, when I first wrote it in my head and the first time I sat down in the studio, I, I sang it to Kyle was on drums and Mike DeCampo was there and they, they both not surprisingly to me, cause this is the way I heard it. They were like, this could be a Johnny cash song. And I said, yeah, it could be, but we can't, we can't go full on Johnny cash because it's, it's just going to really not fit with the album. We need to pull it a little more into the modern era. So I, I wrote a song ages ago uh, called House on the Hudson, which, which kind of also sits on that borderline Americana edge, a little bit of some country influences in it. And I've held it back for the third album. So, I mean, you're not going to hear it when this one comes out. Um, uh, and the, the other song that I'm really curious to see, when we look at our Spotify numbers, there's a one of the songs that's on last summer's EP, Songs of Love and Loss, which is half of album two. There's a song on there called He Reminds Me of You. And I'm really curious to see, I mean, if we get if we get enough radio and streaming service traction with the one that got away, I'm really anxious to see whether the people that help us out in the radio world would consider pushing 
he reminds me of you. It it it's it's a very '80s song, but it's kind of like uh, think of it like a B fifty two song where where Fred shuts up and the girls start singing. We 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 took our two backup singers, and I rewrote the lyrics from a they were originally written from a guy's perspective. It was called "She Reminds Me of You." And I thought it would be more interesting if a girl was singing the song. I rewrote the lyrics to flip them around so that Christina could sing lead and Sabrina's singing along with her. John Makem and I are singing a little bit on the song in, in, in a like kind of in a, in a counterpoint thing where we're answering the female lead. It's super, super catchy. Um, you worry that if you throw a song out there where you're no longer the lead singer, you will just confuse the world. But it didn't didn't sink the B-52s, and I'd like to think it wouldn't sink us. Well, that sounds fascinating, actually. That's uh, that's going to be really interesting to hear when the time comes. Uh, how closely do you follow things like Spotify numbers? Like, Do you really, really study the, the different metrics? And I, I, I don't, only because every time I look at them, I sit back and go, I go, okay, but Ariana Grande has a billion fucking views. And I just get depressed. <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah, so true. So true. Right. So, 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 you know, I mean, it's, it's, it has been, it's, it has been for me, the biggest tell from Spotify has been that of the songs that we haven't pushed as a single, that the one that the girls are singing, he reminds me of you, has just organically gotten the most listens on Spotify. To me, that tells you something because people are finding it on their own without us pushing it. Um, but otherwise, it's like, I don't know what the thresholds are for either Spotify plays or YouTube views where people kind of pay attention to you. I'm told that an unsigned indie band crossing a million views on YouTube is a big deal. And that like only one of one of our marketing people told me that Maybe one percent of all music videos cross that threshold. I have no idea. I, I, I assume that's true. Um, and we're we're just now. We released the one that got away in February, and only in the last few weeks have really really started to see some uh, traction at radio. We have a lot of support at various colleges, and for the first time as of this week, uh, we've never been on the air in Los Angeles before. But we're on one of the big AAA stations there, and they're playing. They're playing at daytime, and apparently they love it. And uh, you know, I'm really grateful to them. Wow, I mean, it's isn't it fascinating how things can work? I mean, like here and here we are, one year later from talking to you, and of course, and now you have this music video that's got one and a half million views, and the, and things things are actually happening. And and so, it, I mean, it's fantastic, but it's so crazy how much can happen in a year. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, to me, the years seem to like crawl by. Um, and, you know, most of these songs were eighty percent finished last summer, but you know, we're pushing we're pushing a couple of singles before we come out with the album, and the, the whole process just seems to be crawling. Part of me just wants to like let's put out the album and move on. You know, like let's move on to album three. Like I'm done with this album, but <laughs> but but. You know, Mark, that's not the way the real world works when you're marketing something, I guess. Although, even so, I always thought, you know, when we were, when you guys and I were, were younger, you know, think back to how often the Beatles and the Stones put out albums and even Garth Brooks. When Garth Brooks was hot, I thought he was a genius. He had the audience by the balls and he put out a record every six months or so. And that's what the Beatles were doing in the 60s. So, you know, it, it, it can work, but there seems to be a bias in the industry that, you know, you, you put out an album and then nothing happens for 18 to 24 months. You know, you just keep pushing that album, pushing that album, pushing that. And then in two years, you can come out with your next album. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I, yeah. Oh, please go ahead, Brad. Well, I was just going to say, and it's so true. And then the albums have to be 80 minutes long instead of, instead of like a reasonable 30 to 40 minutes long. So, so it's almost like you're making two albums, but you're putting it out on one. Yeah. Yeah. Funny, I was uh, just, I was listening to you at the same time that I muted you for a moment as well, or muted myself so I could listen to, he reminds me of you, because I remember now thinking back to when I heard that song, it never occurred to me it was a woman singing, you know, uh, now, now I think about it, it was just the High Plains Drifters, 
Well, that I mean, I will convey that immediately to my marketing guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so much so that when you when you mentioned it, I thought it was a song that hadn't even come out yet. And then I realized, no, oh, it's on this album. It's on it's, the it's a, uh, yeah. It's on it's on the EP. It's on the EP. It's on the EP. Songs of Love and Loss. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's really, I think that really speaks to just uh, your music and how it is very. Uh, you know, I I don't think we're looking for necessarily a a genre from you, anyways. Uh, I think that just it's just music. It's just good music, and we're not really thinking about anything else. Well, I I appreciate that. I, I I still have to consider what I'm asking people to do to try and you know get us out there, get us heard, break us, whatever whatever the right verb is. Um, I I I probably think about it a little more than than I'd like to, but but I understand where the people that advise me are coming from in terms of not yet confusing people, right? Like mm-hmm. you know. Um, confuse them later after they know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, I have a question for you that's not necessarily related to your music, but like, I, you know, earlier I mentioned how I was been watching music video shows and especially like the older ones. So I came across a one hit wonder show and I started to wonder, do you think that there can be one hit wonders anymore or is that kind of a phase that's gone like with the music industry and the way that they can pretty much pay to have streams and listens happen can you even have a one hit wonder anymore i think you can uh, i mean uh, although when i say that i have to check myself because it's um it almost becomes i don't know if this is the right phrase it's almost like a circular thing like like if you only know one song, you know, by a band, like let's take uh, uh, Come On Eileen by Dexy's Midnight Runners, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or uh, or uh, 500 Miles by the, the Scottish guys, the brothers. What the Proclaimers, yeah. The Proclaimers. I mean, they have, they, we only, I only know those two songs by those two bands. They have other albums out there. Uh, I just never, back when I was still buying CDs, I never went out. Actually, I have the Proclaimers album that that's on, but I never went out and bought the the Dexys Midnight Runners album, and I didn't buy any other albums. So they have other songs out there, and some of those songs I'm sure are radio worthy. They just didn't get attention for whatever reason. Um, you know, I mean, any song can break through that stupid "Who Let the Dogs Out" thing, right? I mean, yes, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, if it if it's catchy enough, and either you have a lot of major label marketing muscle behind it, or you're just lucky, right? You're you're just lucky, right place, right time. Uh, any song could become, you know, one. the who was the Australian guy with the? This was the first song I remember. My daughter, my daughter was a baby, and she was complaining. She was three or four, and she was complaining to me. She was telling me she. It was like. I thought there was something really wrong with her, but it was her first experience of an earworm. Yeah. He had a song stuck in her head and she couldn't understand what the hell was happening to her. And she was trying to explain it to me. And then she sang that song. Um, You're just somebody that I used to know. What, what's the title of that? Somebody that I used to know, right? By that Australian guy and the girl. Um, We've never heard from him since, but that that song was a worldwide smash, or at least as far as I've never heard of him since. Maybe in Australia, he's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and that, and that happens well, all the time. I was thinking that with that uh, fellow, I can't even remember his name, but from South Korea, who had that massive hit about oh, six seven years ago. Sai, yeah. I mean, he's massive in South Korea, but I mean, he hasn't had a follow up uh, uh, worldwide no. smash. Oh. I don't think. The whole South Korean pop thing is amazing. My, my, I caught parts of a Netflix documentary that my wife and daughter were watching about how, I mean, they, they, have, they have machines over there. Their record labels are machines. Like some, like our, our, some of our labels used to be in the 50s and 60s where they, you know, they take people and groom them. It's almost like the way the, 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 way the monkeys were put together. Like, let's find four good-looking kids, you know, put a, put a, backing band behind them, get the best songwriters in the world and make them famous. That, that was the recipe for the monkeys. And that's, that's the, that's the South Korean record industry to a T. 
Yeah, yeah, it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting to know if the South Koreans, like, unlike the monkeys who actually like chafed at that and, and then eventually learned all their own instruments and songwriting of their own, it's just like, you know, did do South Koreans do that or or do they like to stay in the machine? I think that eventually everyone tries to break free. I mean, you can look at whether it's, you know, look at Taylor Swift in the last few years, re-recording her old stuff because mm -hmm. she wants it done exactly her way now that mm -hmm. she has the power mm -hmm. to do it that way. Look at Britney Spears. I mean, there, there are tons of examples in, in, in our country. Uh, it's corny to say it, but everyone wants to be free and artists especially want to be free. And they, 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 you know, like they want to be free of their handlers and free of the people who tell them it has to be this way because your last record sounded this way, you know? Well, yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a very good point. And, uh, and I think freedom, well, and that, and that's what you guys have. You guys have that freedom in that way, except to be, except that you want to get hurt, you know, by the yeah. masses. Yeah. We'd like, we'd like to be heard. You know, we're, we're all getting older. We'd, we'd like to, if we're going to leave a mark, this is when we got to do it. You know, we don't want to remain as obscure as we are. It's not about making money. You can't make enough money doing this. Most, most of us can't make enough money doing this to give up our day jobs. Um, and that, that's not what it's about. It, part of it is just, uh, I guess, part of it's bragging rights. It's like, you know, like we're a good band and we want to be recognized as a good band. It's that, you know, we're, we're proud guys. We put out good stuff and we'd like to be recognized for it. Absolutely. And I think you guys deserve to be recognized for that. And, uh, and Larry, once again, it's been a wonderful, wonderful chat with you. And, uh, and I look forward to doing it again um, in another year, hopefully sooner. We'll see hopefully, what happens. Hopefully sooner we can talk about uh, Funny About Love. That's right. That's right. Because uh, I really want to hear it. I'm, I'm so excited to hear it. It's a, it, it, uh, well, uh, I think of it as not, not on the verses. But on, on the choruses, I think of it almost as my homage to uh, Elvis Costello, who was, uh, oh, if, nice. I had to, if, I, if I had to pick like two albums that for me kind of marked the turning of the world from a dark place to a bright place, it was uh, Elvis Costello's 1977 debut, My Aim is True. And then a year later, when the Stones came out with Some Girls, those, those mm. two albums and everything, that whether it was the new wave movement, the punk movement, it's like they finally buried disco. And I was a happy camper, man. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Larry, please tell everybody uh, how they can keep up with you, how they can keep up with the High Plains Drifters, where they can find everything. I would encourage everyone to go to their favorite streaming service and look for our EP, Songs of Love and Loss. Uh, search out our debut album, also on all the streaming services, which is simply called The High Plains Drifters. You can find us on the web at uh, High Plains Drifters. It's hyphenated, high-plains-drifters.com. And uh, on Instagram, Twitter, and places like that, uh, we're, we're less active in those media circles than a lot of other bands, but we're at HPD Music. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Uh, yes, uh, thank you. Had a wonderful time and uh, and wish you nothing but the best in the future and with the and with the new album. So oh. please uh, release it, sell many copies and come on the show again. Oh, we're not, we, we won't sell anything, but we're hoping that people will stream the shit out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I, I want to thank you guys for, for paying attention to us. It's really gratifying uh, to get this kind of attention from guys like you uh it's like you don't have to interview guys like me so it's like uh I, i'm i'm thankful i don't know how else to say it you know on behalf of everyone in the band you're helping to get our music noticed and that that really means a lot to us so thanks well thank you and oh here here you go i mean when i told martin that we were going to talk to you he was just like oh nice so yeah yeah right. uh, you're a fascinating fellow and uh wish you nothing but the best well, I hope I live long enough to fulfill your expectations of me. <laughs> you and me both. All right. All right. Thanks, Larry. And we will talk cool. soon. Cool. Talk to y'all later. Bye, Bye now. Bye. You got it.
She's one of 